0: Welcome to Succession Stories, Insights for Next Generation Entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third-generation, 120-year-old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies, and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transition their company and others who experience disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business. Visit small.big.com, that's small, D-O-T, big, dot com, and sign up today. On today's episode, I was joined by Kent Johnson, the fourth generation CEO of Highlights. There are some products that evoke warm memories from my childhood, and Highlights for Kids is definitely one of them. Maybe you remember the hidden picture puzzles and brain teasers and seeing the magazine in your dentist office. Highlight's founders were in their 60s when they launched the magazine with a mission to enhance childhood education. Kent shared the company's unexpected succession stories, including his own. We talked about how Highlight's mission and values foster a culture of empathy, innovation, and customer focus that has strengthened their resolve throughout the pandemic and for generations to come. Kent Johnson, welcome to Succession Stories. It is so cool to talk to someone that brings back a nostalgia from my childhood. And your company, Highlights, does that for me. When you and I talked the very first time, I told you about how when I would go to the dentist office, I would really look forward, which is kind of crazy to look forward to going to the dentist. But (laughs) the magazine was one of my very favorite things there, in addition to the little prizes I got after my visit but there's so many people that might be listening that have that same nostalgia. But that being said, there are some really cool things to talk about with your company and I what I like about your story, your succession story is that it hits on all three pillars mm. of this show, which is innovation, transition, and growth. So Kent, welcome. Why don't we start by you telling us about the history of Highlights and connecting us to key people in the first three generations of the company.
1: Certainly, first, Lori, it's great to be here, and it, it, I never grow old of, of you know, hearing stories of how our products and, and our brand has had a positive impact on people. I mean, that, that's really why we do what we do, but, and we have been around a long time, so almost, well, every adult that I speak to has at least had the chance to have experienced it as a, a child. We were started in 1946 by my great grandparents. And really, they were not your classic entrepreneurs. They were 59 and 61 years old when they started the company. Wow. And their thought really was to pour their entire life's experience. They're lifelong educators, wrote a lot on parenting, spoke a lot, were in sort of a parenting movement in the the 20s, 30s, 40s. And they wanted to pour all that experience and really their philosophy about child development and and healthy family relationships into a product that could directly reach kids and families at home. So they started the company, kind of threw their life savings into it, and it was a slow start. I mean, magazines weren't a huge category for kids. So it was early going. It was tough. I mean, they were about product. So there were business challenges. There were ups and downs those early years. And in fact, um, I think we really became a family business when their children got together to decide who was going to go help them understand it was time to shut down their dream. And so their son, Gary Myers Jr., took a leave of absence. He was a helicopter aeronautical engineer, took a leave of absence to come, you know, convince his parents they had to give this up. And what eventually happened is, is I think he was sort of brought into their spirit, to their mission had an entrepreneurial sort of insight that maybe we could make this go he could make it go so he and his wife eventually joined the company relocated their family to Columbus Ohio and raised a little money got some investors got our, got the company out of trouble and were able to kind of really turn it around and they started things like the program you described putting sample copies in doctors and dentist office waiting rooms they also started a really important program you know working with teachers to show teachers the product, to try to get them to recommend it to parents. And those two things really turned around, saved the company as they built the team and and grew the business. So that was the kind of early history of the company.
0: That's a really interesting fact that the founders were basically 60 years old when they launched the business. There's a lot of people now thinking about transitions and starting a business, but this is probably a, a, a very rare example even back then to be in that age bracket and and being entrepreneurs. What do you know about that time horizon from when their son Gary sort of sat down with them and said, Hey, you need to shut it down? Was that, you know, was a company highlights around for five years or longer, or shorter?
1: That was sort of I think it was in the late 40s. So I, I think, you know, really the the innovation that he he and his his wife led with with the the management team was in the mid fifties. Okay. So, and, and you know, it, is, it was an incredible time to be starting a company. I mean, this is just after World War II. So we had right. paper rationing. The founders, it's interesting as a company, just a side note, the founders had already committed to a family home for their retirement. So they started the editorial group to make the product in Northeast Pennsylvania in a town called Honesdale. But you had to have a presence to work with your door-to-door sales team and your printers in 1946. So we opened a business office here in Columbus. So we've been working remote, not just in the pandemic, but in a way, we've been working remote since yeah. 1946. <laughs> um, and I do also think in 1946, I think there's some wonderful stories. They really were a husband and wife team. and My my great grandmother was way ahead, I think, in some ways of doing things that maybe women were less encouraged to do at that time. So she really was an important business role and the company wouldn't have happened without without her role.
0: So they pioneered and they were educators and they were certainly mission driven the second generation which would be your grandparents is that
1: correct so yeah so my great uncle would have been gary junior who came in okay, and was great-uncle. active okay and i think there was you know general support my grandmother w- was their daughter and they had another son who became the science editor jack myers who was a, a professor down at the university of texas but was got very involved and and i think collectively everyone was was proud that they had a phd scientist as their science editor for young children. And I think we, we continue that tradition today to try to have the best of science really represented and explained in a rigorous manner to kids. So there was an involvement. And unfortunately, and just to, to play out a little bit the history, the two siblings who were less involved day to day did get more involved, unfortunately, as a result of a tragedy that hit the company. So in you know having had this rocky start being on the verge of of failing, things had really turned around in the 50s. And it, in fact, in the summer of 1960, we di- we built from ground up with company cash, no debt, built a company headquarters. You know, family businesses don't like debt, right? So we got to the point <laughs> where we can build a bu- building. And so great, we have a great photo of 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 the the day they dedicated that in, in the summer of 1960s. Things were really looking good. The, the circulation of the magazine was up to a half a million. And then in December of that year, some executives, including Gary Jr. and his wife Mary, were going to New York to for a business meeting to look at putting highlights on the newsstand, believe it or not. And tragically, there was a mid-air collision over New York City, where oh, uh, two wow. planes collided in a winter storm. Everyone on those planes, you know, horribly, everyone perished. And you had a situation for Many companies had, you know, because business travel was really what was going on at that time. So you had a terrible situation for many companies and families. But our company faced a situation where three of our top executives were lost and the founders yeah. lost their, their son, their daughter-in-law. So really threw our business family ecosystem into crisis. And I, I still today, you know, I wasn't alive. That happened in 1960. But I still draw strength um, from the stories I've heard of how the commitment to mission, the commitment to what they were doing, they kind of leaned into that and said, okay, we've got to rebuild. I mean, you can hardly imagine how at that point you have founders in their seventies. Yeah. But what you have is the my grandmother and great uncle kind of leaning in and saying, okay, now we have to get a little more involved, get involved in the board. There was a surviving executive, Dick Bell, who, who was already in New York. He ably led the, the the company. He rebuilt the team. He he was committed to the mission. So they really had to go through a process in a in a completely unplanned and tragic succession. Go through a process to to rebuild the sustainability of the company, and the family had to, of course, go through the process of of incredible grief and just sort of dealing with that reality. So I, it's it's just hard to imagine. But for, for me today, as we face challenges or as, we, as this pandemic hit our society, I kind of reflect that, and I think all companies can reflect if you've been around, you, you've gotten through things in the past. Right. So how do you draw strength? And particularly when you're a family business, when you're a mission-driven company, how do you rely on, on that to sort of give you perseverance?
0: I can't even imagine the loss, the feeling of loss that everybody had felt not only as a family, but also the employees. I'm I'm guessing based on what I know of your company from talking to you originally and looking at information online, and it's probably a very family oriented type of culture. And so I'm guessing the employees felt like as much tied to the grief as as the actual family members did.
1: I think that's true. I mean, I can't imagine it. Um, but I, I what I've what I've seen. You know, we're not a company that has you know. Big factories you know we're a company that's a, that's that talks all the time about what we're about, and I think one of my major focuses but it's always about employee engagement. So when we're at our best selves, it's because we're committed to what we're doing together. so there's a a real community feeling we try to create. I mean, there's so many stories of er, in the early days how employees came together on the back porch of the founders. So like when your boardroom is a screened in porch in a, <laughs> in a beautiful farmhouse setting, um, yeah. I think it creates a little bit of a different culture. And so, no, I, I think it was just a, a horrible felt throughout the company. And, and just, I, I think we're, I, I just consider myself and, and our current employees so lucky and and grateful that they did kind of find a way to persevere.
0: Absolutely. So third generation CEO was that a family member or did that did the company hire
1: someone from the outside? Yeah, so so we did have a third generation CEO as a family member, and I can't remember the exact dates. But Dick Bell, who was an educator by training and a a business person, really led the company for for a long period of time. And one of the things you know, he diversified the company, helped us acquire outside of Highlights, the consumer brand, helped us acquire companies in the education space. So a curriculum company called Zayner Bloser, we acquired and still operate and run today, does incredible things for um, foundational literacy skills in elementary school. But he then also mentored the son of Gary Jr., Gary Myers III, who was my predecessor, mentored him, and he eventually took over as CEO, I think, in 1978, 1980, somewhere in that range. So he served as CEO, Gary Jr. served as CEO for about 26 years until I took over. And his cousin, Kent Brown, came in over time and was mentored by Caroline Myers and became the editor-in-chief, really became responsible for the product. So you had two cousins kind of on the business and on the editorial side in the third generation.
0: Great. Well, it sounds like the company really had a period of growth and it was growing organically, but then it also added in some other companies to really take it to the next level and diversify. So let's switch gears and talk about your story. What's your background? Where did you grow up? And then take us through your education and how you eventually came into Highlights.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's not the most linear path. I, I like to say I did I did everything I could to not join the family business and somehow <laughs> failed at it. Um, you know, it's, but it's interesting as a family, we do we do a lot of work, a lot of and, and have had great family business consultants. You know, on governance, on education, and our focus is really on stewardship. So I grew up, even though I, I never had a parent who worked for the company, I never lived in a city where the company had employees. But I I grew up in a family culture, trying to encourage stewardship of of the the company and the mission and the dream of the founders. So we'd visit and that sort of thing. But I grew up in Schenectady, New York. And I, you know, I probably had some, I I certainly had some desire to be an educator. Like, you know, this is a family of educators. We have many more helpers, doctors, educators, social workers than we have NBAs in our our family. So I, I wanted to be an educator and actually, but then- Got bitten by uh, sort of a love of science in general, but also particularly of physics. So ended up uh, going to college and studying physics. Uh, I took a brief break and went into the classroom and taught high school physics, trying to figure out, do I want to be in the classroom? Do I want to be an educator? But I couldn't resist the physics bug. So I did go back and, and earn a Ph.D., spent six long but enjoyable years <laughs> in, um, in a basement lab uh, to earn a Ph.D. in, in physics. So not the typical preparation for, you know, children's publishing for sure. But so what happened is, you know, I, I realized along the way I didn't really want an academic career in science. I wanted to do things that that I hoped would have more impact on, on people and society. Kind of like what, what is the going to be the impact of, of one's work. So after physics, I actually only really considered jobs that brought me into a research role that had a medical or health component. So I went to a small startup where I worked on medical diagnostics, uh, instruments to do measurements to help drug companies develop new drugs, that, that type of thing, where I really could see a through line between what I was doing and a, a societal benefit. Um, but I also love the complexity and the collaboration and the innovation that happens when you bring people together of dis- different disciplines. So the ability to be Trained in physics, but work with engineers and biologists and software people and chemists, material sciences. I mean, it was just an incredibly exciting place to work, and we, we did do great things. But that change uh, was a huge change from working in a physics lab. Um, and I loved it. I loved the business aspects, um, the complexity of it, the, the sort of organizational aspects. So what happened when I was in biotech is I started in the lab bench and over about six years really moved with our product and our technology into the market. So got to work with customers, got to worry about field support, manufacturing, how do we make the things we're gonna sell. And in that time I was on in a rotating, our family had a program at that point to bring people at the right age into a rotating role on the board of directors to see how the company really worked. And so I just, I, I said, wow, this company is a little more interesting than I realized. It's not a little magazine. We have a diversified company. We've got these incredibly talented executives. We've got all these different business models. And, and, and I realized we really faced some tough challenges. Technology is going to change. That was in the early 2000s. You know, how's technology going to change publishing? How's it going to change? What happens in the classroom? How are these business models evolving? So I, I realized at that point it was a much more interesting company than I had ever thought. Um, and at near the end of that board stint, my predecessor Gary uh, Three, Gary Myers the third, he kind of said to me, he looked at me he had a sort of funny side smirk. He says, "You know, you've always told us you wouldn't talk to us about working here because you're a science guy, and we're not a science company." And he said, "I've been listening to you talk about your work, and..." you actually are no longer a science guy. You're a business guy. You're a business guy. <laughs> you're a business Congratulations. guy. <laughs> like, and he kind of said, you know, and he basically said, look, either own up to it that you're a right. business guy and you don't want to work here or, you know, maybe we can have a conversation. And I sort of paused because he was right. I had, I had become a business guy. I mean, I really was very interested in, in all of the, com- you know, the complex issues of how, how do you actually serve customers? Um, and that probably started a year and a bit, a year, a year long conversation, let's say. Um, and, then, um, and then I did what, you, what you're not supposed to do.
0: What <laughs> was <the> that? <laughs> so
1: when I think when we were really on the verge of saying, okay, uh, here's a specific role at the company that maybe makes sense. And I was on the verge of this discussion. We were expecting our first child. So, uh, in those discussions, I decided, okay, this is a reasonable transition to make, um, but we had to stay in uh, suburban Washington DC until our son was born. I mean, just you can't move in the middle of that with, with the support network you have. So, did the sort of career transition that involved being a first-time parent, moving to a new city where you don't know anyone, and completely changing industries. So a fair amount of stress, Um, you know, it's it's, no one would advise you to make that much change in your life. Um, But, you know, we sort of did. And uh, on the other hand, what it did give me is a a sort of a four-month hiatus from work to really be a first-time parent in partnership uh, with my wife. So there were a lot of benefits, but it was a kind of a crazy way to do things.
0: I love a few things you mentioned there. One is that the board of directors had the forethought to let younger people, the next generation into the boardroom. That's a pretty unique situation, isn't it? That, I haven't heard of that before.
1: You know, it it is. I think it is unique. And it's been a program that's existed for a long, long time. And it's gone through evolution. So we still have a program that's the sort of successor program, which we call now a board fellowship, where we give some exposure, but also have a very structured way that next generation can really Learn about the board and the governance, meet independent directors and spend time. We have an ind- a board dominated by independent directors. and but also learn about the company, meet the executives. so it's it's a very structured education focused, intensive educational program. Um, but it really came, I mean, I have to give my predecessor credit because there was a period of time, I think probably, and I, I don't remember exactly when it started, but they realized that in our third generation, which was thirteen descendants, that there was a situation or an evolution a reality that there were a certain group that was involved in the company. They were either employees or directors or directly involved. And then there was a group that wasn't directly involved. And they realized that that would be unhealthy if they didn't have a mechanism to make sure everyone was connected. So they really started it in the third generation to bring those who weren't in the company and put them in the boardroom so they really could understand what was going on. And then in my generation, so they went through everyone twice, actually. And then in my generation, it was, uh, how do we educate? How are we going to do succession of this mission and of good governance practices to the next generation? And my generation is 27. So it was a bigger task. But they went through all of us, or um, I guess we're still maybe going through some. Okay. Um, but but it sort of, it evolved. Um, and it's, you know, I'm grateful to our independent directors who take it very seriously, invest time and, you know, invested time in talking to me and helping me understand back in, in the 2000s, but continue to do that. And I, I think you, as a CEO now, my primary focus is making sure we have an effective and efficient board. And so you have to balance the work of the board, good governance of the company, particularly since we're facing so much disruption, with okay. the family stewardship and education. But if you work at it, you can balance those two things.
0: So do you have a separate family council in addition to this independent board? Is we that do. how you structure it? Okay. We
1: do. And and we have interfaces and and I mean we've we've benefited from multiple instances of of great family business consultants. Um, have tried to follow best practices. So we have a family council, a family assembly, you know, governance processes there, sort of formal ways of how the interaction happens. Um, but we think it's incredibly important for our, our, our independent directors to have a direct feeling of the family and its commitment to the company. And we also think it's really important for all the family members to feel like they understand and, and see how the governance of the company works.
0: So the role of the independent board, I guess if you had to boil it down, I'm hearing two themes for sure. One is governance and the other is strategy and succession because they have an eye, they're working, their missions to help you and the family in thinking forward about how to take the business to the next level, because this is a company that everybody's interested in seeing succeed for generations to come any other roles that the board plays for you and the company
1: i mean i think you've captured it you know we've we've been through and we haven't talked about how i became ceo but we'll, we'll get to that we've been through succession and i think it's always particularly in a family business and 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 you know our family has a mission statement that talks about wanting to own the company forever you know it talks about the mission and we really believe that being private allows us to operate in a way that takes a long-term view of the benefit we're creating for all our stakeholders, and most importantly, the children we serve, but also our employees, our partners, our vendors, and our shareholders. Um, So we kind of believe in this idea of stakeholder capitalism um, and think that being a private company sort of does insulate and allow that um, culture and that focus to continue. Uh, so that being said, so the board's always got to worry about succession. Um, it's a very supportive board, very strategic. I think um, I'm always looking for them as how how can they add value to the company? How can they make me a better leader? How can they make our team better? How can they help us with organizational and talent issues, as well as um, keeping us focused and disciplined to be thinking about what's happening in the world? How's the world changing? I, I think the number one thing we're focused on is how how do you change and adapt? Because the world is not slowing down it's speeding up. And uh, if, you, if you're if you serious, when we're about to celebrate our 75th anniversary or, as a company. And if you take seriously the idea you want to be here for another 75, you, I think you need the absolute best strategic oversight and, and adaptability you can get.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go back a little bit that on your transition, you had the baby yeah. and your wife and yourself, you moved to Columbus, Ohio from DC, and you started to raise your family there. And now you're CEO.
1: What happens? Well, so I, you know, I came in actually to a role in strategic planning. And actually, while I was sitting on the board, I was watching the board pressure my predecessor about his succession plan. Um, and his health hadn't been perfect. He'd had some cancer along the way. In fact, um, I think at the time I came in, we would talk about how he'd really stolen years. He 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 probably shouldn't have survived. He had a very fortunate experimental treatment. Um, so when I came in, he was probably 59. So we Plotted a kind of um, you know three to five year transition. Let's see if this works out. Nothing's guaranteed. You've got to be mentored. Let's see some development. And we were working that process, um, and his health started to get worse. So we were starting to accelerate it. I mean, he sort of looked at me and said, "Well, it seems like you've convinced people you work hard, and maybe we can give you a little more responsibility sooner." Um, so we were even talking about evolving job descriptions and a transition. Um, and unfortunately, um, uh, he, he, in January of 2005, uh, he died suddenly of a heart attack. Okay. And what's interesting, and I, I sort of still think somebody who's been through such serious medical issues, I, I think he had a sense of things. And his in, our independent directors at that time had been saying, I think I'd recently, uh, they had said to him, you, "You're." you're accelerating your plans for succession, and we're concerned you haven't communicated it to the family, to the shareholders. And so he actually, I mean, it's almost eerie to think about it back, you know, it's 15 years ago, but he took a bunch of excerpts from the emails he sent the, the independent directors about the succession and, and how he felt about it. And he actually sent them out to the entire family uh, the night before he died. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, here, you know, uh, I mean, and I was very close to him and still kind of think of how he approached problems, of course, even. And it seems like um, it's just yeah. is hard to believe it's been so long. But, um, you know, there, so what was the situation we faced? I'd been in the company at that point. I mean, take, take two years of board. So I, I had some background and some comfort with the board, but I'd only been a working day in, day out employee for six months. When he passed away, I was 36 in a new industry. Um, So it's really, and I I joked with my board after, you know, five, six years after, once we were there, I said, how could you guys have put me in such a stressful, like, what a crazy thing to do. This is not a... um, good succession story. Like, you don't want this succession story. Um, yeah. I, but, I, you know, I think the independent directors, is interesting what we did is we paused. We, we said, hey, we've got these great three independent directors who know the company, who know the people. And we kind of paused succession on the board. We asked them to extend their terms. And we said, you know, can, will you see this through this transition? Let's have stability at the board when we have transition in the CEO level. And I remember pretty, pretty vividly the board sort of said to me you have one job tomorrow don't don't break anything <laughs> <laughs> and they said they said they said we're not going to have any 100 day plan things are fine and and then they you know more seriously said look you actually have two jobs you're going to figure out how to be ceo and you still need to be learning these industries learning the people learning the organization so i had a lot of support and no pressure for rapid uh, change. I mean, I, I think we were really fortunate at that time. The company was in good place. We had great leaders. We had stability, so it allowed the time. Um, but I still look back, and and as we brought on a new president this year for our consumer business, and we talked about what's the ninety day plan, and he said, you know what, our plan here is to take enough time so you really can learn the people in the business. So I think there's a, a, a go slow so you can be successful, or go slow so you can go fast. Uh, kind of approach, which I think in organizations, sometimes people move too quickly.
0: There's so many important things of what you just shared, another tragedy, right another another yeah. loss, and the company setting a course for succession, but of course it got accelerated and and that's life, right? We try to plan yeah. for things, but sometimes things happen out of our control. But there was foresight and there was planning. And too many times we hear stories where there was no backup and there was no plan. So at least you were, you were already kind of well underway. You lost a great mentor, obviously, but it's nice to hear that you had a lot of support and people rallied around you. You were, you know, your family member, you had spent time with the board. And so when you're coming in, you know, you got the keys, so to speak, but you didn't, you left the car in the parking lot. And that sounds like the right thing because it was just not the right time to make any changes. You had still a lot to learn, which is right. really, really important.
1: Well, it would have been incredibly difficult to bring somebody in as a bridge at that point. Um, I mean, I think we had a lot of luck that it, it worked out this way. And and I, I still, I think it's always dangerous as a CEO to assume it was just your skill or it was destined to work. I mean, I, I think... Uh, I feel very fortunate that that, that things worked, um, but it was pretty stressful. You know, it's a pretty stressful period. I, I don't think you want to do it that way.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. As you said, it was not the textbook <laughs> way to have it go, but not too many times does it go in a, no. a way that we predict and, and being resilient and being able to modify and adapt a word that you used earlier. So the business you mentioned at, in 2005, when you came in, was relatively healthy financially, which is great. Did that afford you over time, maybe not year one, but starting in year two or so on as CEO for you to take that look at disruption, what was happening in the market and looking at innovation? Because I'd love to talk about innovation. It's evident for me as a child seeing highlights and now going to your website and seeing all the amazing products that you have available for kids in a digital world. So over the past 15 years, And many other publishers have experienced this too. It's not just your company, but you've faced this growing shift and potential disruption. But your company seems to have done a really good job at positioning itself. How did you do that? What was your approach to understand those market dynamics? How did you skate to where the puck was going
1: Yeah, I mean, well, we make a lot of mistakes, and I I mean, I do. As I think about it, there's just so many false starts in innovation, and and you have to be. I think we 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 have to get better. We had to get better at stopping things that weren't working. So there was a period of my career that was about stopping certain areas of business. But I think we also a lot of what I've learned about innovation has been about culture and how what's your self image, how do you think about yourselves. So one of the things that I think maybe frustrated me initially, or I had to think about how to evolve is is how do you accelerate the pace of experimentation? Um, Because I think there's something that's so good about publishing, the deliberate kind of creation of very carefully vetted content that is connected to a certain slowness. So there, there was an evolution to try to say, how do we do things more rapidly as a company? And, I th- and and i think that we we're, we're we're always working on because you have to have to go faster you have to be able to stop things more quickly start things more quickly and and there's no secret i mean i think you just have to always be working on that and and obviously there's lots of secrets but there's no one silver bullet um on the other hand i, I think the other piece that for me has to drive innovation because i don't focus on what are we doing in digital or what are we doing in print um but uh, having to evolve my thinking, from us being a product company, like what products are we going to innovate and try to say, how are we going to to put the customer at the center? So I love technology, like I'm a physics guy, I love toys, I love devices, and I care so little about the bells and whistles of the technology in the context of the company. You have to focus on what I kind of try to preach internally it's about the kid, it's about the family, and what does that technology do? So there's a lot of things we've been very slow on in technology because we don't see that it actually benefits kids. But when we have done things in technology, I think it's been it's been motivated by that, that, that breakthrough innovation to serve kids and families. And that I think has led some, some of our activities to be more successful than if we just jumped in because it was cool or it was a way to innovate. Um, and I also I, I think it t- takes time. You have to um, suppress fear. Fear is the the great killer of creativity. And I think trying to get to where you can simultaneously be good at something you're already good at, but not be afraid to get into the areas that are threatening to what you do. Um, but it's it's you know, and and I think you have to have a an optimistic point of view. So one of the things you know you, we, we talk about how is t- digital distribution going to disrupt our existing business. You can spend a lot of time worrying about that, about protecting. Um, but what I see and what's so exciting, and actually, you probably can't even see on our website what, to me, is the most exciting digital stuff we're doing, because it's all outside the US. Like The ability to reach children around the world with this incredible content that we've developed, authentic content we developed in the US, is being used around the world for practice for English language learners. So reaching kids in China, in Hong Kong, in Turkey, um, scaffolding their reading development and and sort of working on the aspect of how do you have a child learn to love reading, not just learn to read. And you can only do that through technology. A company our size, we're a small, less than 500 people here in Columbus, Ohio, and we've got thousands and thousands of kids around the world reading the content we made, you know, in a small town in Northeast Pennsylvania. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing that that's possible, um, but it came from the mission of serving kids and thinking about what they need, not just thinking about technology and code and platforms. Um, so I think if innovation is driven by a customer need, it's far more likely to be successful. So um, every every hire we make, we're, I'm looking for customer obsessiveness, like. So I went on a little rant there. I got it. No, it's not a rant.
0: And so, you, in fact, you know, I, so I spend a lot of time with startups. I've worked in startups. I teach a class at Carnegie Mellon called the Corporate Startup Lab, which is about innovation and in large companies. And so, companies can buy innovation, right, through partnerships, or you can acquire an innovative technology, or you can create it in house. And so, my experience is the create in house side.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I'm always fascinated by that, especially when there's a multi-generational company like yours. You're in the fourth generation. You're about to celebrate your 75th birthday as a company. And here we are talking about a startup mindset and agility and adaptability and skating to where the puck is going so you're not disrupted. And at the same time, serving your mission for kids. That's what it's all about. And that's what I find so fascinating about your story. And I think, too, I mean, you could have a, a panel of, of kids telling you what they think about your product, but that's only part of it, right? You're looking out to the needs from an academic standpoint, education standpoint, and then you're, it looks like you're kind of marrying the two. You certainly want the usability side, right, where you want your website to be kids can use it without an adult's help. So there's, there's that side of it where they have to be very customer oriented but the other side is really the business side too because you want to be able to to scale and be profitable. For example, one of the things I noticed on your site is create, you have a subscription box. Yeah. which I thought was really smart from a recurring revenue standpoint. So you have the products that you're selling which are scaling around the world, obviously translated and that takes expense and overhead. However, you know, when you can get that wonderful impact where you're able to to really leverage the investments you've made you know, it's a great position to be in as a company and then the subscription box is probably just another example that i just happened to see but maybe you have some others that you can
1: I, share yeah let me let me tell you my most favorite innovation example because we all love technology we think of technology as as innovation but actually one of our one of the things i'm most proud of is is an innovation we made in 2011 we launched a magazine for babies for babies (laughs) for babies for toddlers for infant toddlers to you know zero to two-year-olds you know think think a nine-month-old to a 15-month-old but you know we we and this is one where um we we asked our editorial group to look at what are what are the characteristics of a magazine for for babies like what because you sort of think okay we know about board books you know there's there's examples out there so you think how could you possibly innovate and they spent some time thinking they came back and they said we want to make a magazine that is printed on plastic is printed on Tyvek and is hand stitched and is die cut. So the edges are curved and you start to say, okay, what, what do you want to do? And you say, okay, well, they're going to put it in their mouth. It can't have sharp edges. We can't have staples because we can't have a child bleeding. So it's got to be stitched with thread and, and we're going to make it plastic because well at home, we want the kid to be able to read and experience print in the bathtub or we want it to survive the constant licking and gumming or in a, in a, in a daycare center, we want those things to go in a dishwasher so you can sterilize things. So you see, here and say, this is crazy. How are we going to do that? And we currently have, I think maybe 150, 200,000 subscribers to a monthly book. I mean, is it a magazine, a monthly shipment uh, to highlights? Hello. Um, We've got large numbers of them that have been placed in childcare settings through partners, so sold to institutions, um, early Head Start, that type of thing. And you sort of look at it and you're like, you know, it's not, is that sexy as an app or a platform that can reach everyone in the world? No. But like, as an example of consumer end user focused innovation and doing something that you would never really think to do you know, create a plastic monthly magazine, figure out how to ship it, how to make sure when it gets there, it's inside something because you can't have whatever's in the postal system in your child's mouth. So it's, it's gotta be shipped in an entirely different way. But also, so for us, it was also a mission. So why why would we do that? And we got really passionate and it still are that what happens in the brain from age zero to age three is so critical to human development and we realized as a company we did not want to be a two to twelve company. We wanted to be a birthed on company, and from and that's a mission perspective. We wanted to make an impact in those families as early as possible. Develop the bonding between mom and baby. Develop the pro pre literacy behaviors, um, but also from a business perspective, we didn't want to go head to head with Minecraft and Roblox. And so our focus had to be on. How do you engage families earlier to make sure you have a long enough relationship for the lifetime value of the company? So if we can start working with families when they have a six-month-old, we have a much better chance to be a successful company than if we wait until the child's four or five.
0: That's a really smart strategy because you extended, as you said, you extended that lifetime value forward, pulled it forward. And for me now, my kids are older, but I, I definitely recall having little books and they'd put them in their mouth and it was in the bathtub. And I was always finding uh need for, for things like that. Now I've now discovered my newest bait go-to baby yeah. gift. This is going to be great. I'll yeah. have to check that out for friends and family when they have their babies. That's a great example, Kent, because it also the, the niche aspect of it, where you really got to understand parent need and what they were looking for, as well as the daycare center and these other centers were and understanding the utility of that educational item in that setting. That's just so right. important. So that's a really, I think, a, a wonderful example. I'm not surprised that that's one of your favorites.
1: Well, it's my, you know, I take no credit other than I'm so grateful the people we have think so deeply about what happens in childhood and child development. Um, and, and then you have to have a shout out like that the operations people have made it work at this scale is just it just still blows me away.
0: Yeah. That's really, really cool. You mentioned the pandemic earlier. I want to spend some time on, on that because it's about leadership. In your experience, when you reflect on the last year, what do you think about in terms of the impact of the pandemic on your business? Were there any major setbacks and how did
1: you get through those? Yeah. For us, I mean, it's a tale of multiple stories. So on the business side, maybe first, we have companies that sell to schools, we curriculum into into classrooms, um, professional development services, resources that help teachers kind of develop the broad range of skills they have. And we were in our prime selling season, uh, spring, and everyone shut down the schools. So in a way it was terrifying um, because you had to pivot in a day for a sales force from making sales calls to instead trying to enable the customers to better use the products they already had in this crazy, um, you know, adapting to virtual learning. And but you know, your whole revenue model is completely up in the air. So um, I, I'm so impressed how people adapted and just and all we said is focus on the needs of the customer, focus on the needs of the customer. That's how we're gonna get through this week, next week, this month, and, and we'll see what happens. On the consumer side, we did see some after some initial shock, we saw increased demand. And what on that side, we have so many parents or former parents, you know, different stages, and we were all experiencing this disrupted society. And we tried to all put on our put on empathy to the customer and say what What can we do to help? What would we need if we were suddenly now a teacher at home? So that that group was really, I think, able to lean in on. you know, home learning products, lean in on free content that would be printable, you know, not just, I mean, everyone was going to get plenty of screen time. That was pretty clear. Right. <laughs> so how do you, how do you give parents ideas to do things that are off screen? Um, Knowing that, you know, and, and, but we're all in the midst of the same disruption. So I think the, 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 the higher level issue was the fear or uncertainty or the, the kind of, as leaders, how are we gonna take care of our people? So how do we make sure people are safe when we don't really understand all the science? Like, how do we make sure we can can function remotely where people are safe, but can do their jobs? Um, so I think, you know, I'm just, I'm so grateful because I think across our leadership team, what I saw is, is, is people stepping up, like rising to the occasion. Um, we learned that we should And I think this is a lesson I hope we'll never forget. You've got to trust your people, trust and empower your people like things. People did things in the company without being they didn't require any top down instruction. Just like, okay, we're going to work remotely. Let's figure it out. Um, So I think for me, it's 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 increased or reminded me how important humility is for leaders, for empathy, empathy. and then things I think evolved. Like we've tried to stay incredibly int- attentive to the social emotional needs of our our company, to the communication, to how do you um, maintain social engagement, you know, over over the time. Um, you know, and I think we've had, we've come up with ideas and and sort of modes of communication that I'm sure will persist long past this. And I kick myself. I said, we we could have been doing all you know yeah. weekly all company video calls. We could have done it ten years ago.
0: Exactly. Like, it's what? amazing how how all of us. I do Zoom calls now with family for we all over the last year. We've done major holidays over Zoom, and right. my relatives live all over the country. We're not in the same city. Why weren't we? doing that before, it just never would have occurred to us. Right. And yeah, what would be an example of something that you've been doing as a culture engagement piece using technology with your teams?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the number one is it's the frequency and the the type of communication. So it's, it's, it's getting everyone together um, you know, first all company every week, everyone together with a mix of content and a mix of kind of emotional connection uh, type thing. So I'm kind of an introvert by nature but sometimes it's a little bit like a talk show. Like we like we all have to, let's talk about the emotions we had about having this holiday we just went through where we couldn't be with our family because we're all going through this experience and we need to connect on an emotional level. Um, but I think also it's it's accelerated our sharing of information so um, I'm a huge believer that we can, that, that if, if you're a right person, if you're to be a working at highlights, you should get positive emotional energy and feedback from hearing about the good things we're doing. So finding ways to share the ways different parts of the company are trying to serve customers, I think can raise our overall morale and increase engagement. So that's a piece that, you know, we used to do that you know, 15 years ago through like a newsletter but to be able to do it through video and more frequently and bite-sized pieces is very effective. Um, and I think also it's, it's interesting The interesting thing we've, we've also learned, we have a lot of remote teams. So we've always had people on the speakers in the ceilings or adjoining meetings remotely. And one of the things we've observed in our teams that are in different locations, when you're on Zoom, everybody's kind of an equal. So we've learned some things about, I think about how meetings where you had some people in the room and not in the room were less effective because it you know we didn't have the technology or and it's not just the technology the meeting habits to make sure everyone was included. So I think we've found ways that are going to let our teams that aren't all in the same place work better on into the future even when we don't have to because people have seen the possibility when we really all are connected and can all kind of participate in the same way even though it had to happen through this pandemic um, I think we've learned some lessons that we're going to figure out how to have persist.
0: That's really cool. and you're totally right. I'm kind of chuckling about my experiences in companies where we we had a room of you know fifteen people, and then we'd have one or two on a phone. and it just it just is it, it didn't work. the vibe certainly wasn't there. And it's a great thing that you're doing to recognize that there's a lot of value in how you can move those new traditions forward. So on that note, though, I want to talk about legacy as kind of rounding down this, this discussion today, because you're the fourth generation and you talked about the, the next generation approach when you were coming into the company. Do you think that there's interest from G5, generation five, who I don't know what age group they, they might yeah. be for all your cousins. Is there any interest, you think, to having people come in? And then also, what is most important to you as part of your leadership legacy in the company?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a multi-part and a complex uh, question. It, it's interesting. We, I think, it's a very dangerous thing in our, um, you know, very fast-paced, very competitive world to um, assume or even hope that the the DNA pool of one group would produce the right uh, the timing and the training and the the right leadership match for a company of of our size. So our focus in succession within the family. Is, is about uh, engagement with the mission of the company. It's about promoting a group stewardship for good governance and for the mission and dream of, of the founders. Um, so we don't presume, I mean, it may be we have uh, people who want to get involved in governance or as employees in the fifth generation. But what we really focus on is trying to have as many people as engaged as possible in stewardship. So in terms of the legacy, I would hope to have in the family. I, I think of myself as a just want to transmit stewardship that I inherited. So I, I want to be seen as just, just one of the continuum. Um, you know, that that would be the best legacy. In terms of the company, um, you know, as I've been at this now, geez, 16 years, um, which, but I'm still relatively young. So I don't really think a lot about legacy. Um one of the things I think a lot about, which I would be very proud to have be my legacy, is we're we're trying to figure out how do you have the mission and the values associated with the company become a, a sort of irreversibly part of the culture. So I I spend time thinking about how do you make a how do you make a culture for a company that doesn't depend on individuals um, that will be self-sustaining. Um, so we've been through tragedies and, and I, you know, I, I, I am very passionate about what we do. I talk to people inside and outside the company with passion about, about our mission. Um, but I also recognize someday I won't be able to do that. So how do we create, how do we create a way that more and more people can, can be part of it, can, can speak with passion, can sustain it because if we can build it into the culture, we can be invincible. If it's if it's requires specific individuals, we're always at risk. Um, so we've got a lot of people thinking about that problem and working on that. We even created the role of Chief pur- Purpose Officer. Wow. Um, our editor in chief, we sort of promoted her and, and into this role of Chief Purpose Officer, which sounds a little corporate, but it, it was the best. You know, it, it accurately describes what she's doing. And I, I talked to her, and, I, and we talk about it. But she has two two kind of spheres. It's to try to help us advance our purpose outside the company. So thought leadership, partnerships, working working on projects that, that people in the world will know about, but there's also a really critical internal role, trying to create ways that we talk about and institutionalize our purpose internally to try to create glue, bring as many employees as possible, educate them, engage them, talk to them about the purpose and, and have it be living, breathing throughout the company. Um, and, you know, I think I, I also want to be a chief purpose officer. I think we all within a company, I want to I want to have a company where every employee is part chief purpose officer. But for now, we have put someone in that role to really try to focus on making institutionalizing what we're about as an entity. Um, and if, if if we can succeed at that, I, that I I would be proud to have as a legacy, because I think if we do that, the business results will follow.
0: That's awesome. That's a really great philosophy, I think. And I'm not surprised based on everything that you've said that you've emphasized that role and having someone focus on it. So that's that's really, really cool. The last question for you, I'd love to ask all of my guests, is if you have a favorite saying or mantra about entrepreneurship or leadership?
1: Jesus. I mean, I'm, if people ask me my favorite saying, our you know our foundational belief as a company is is children are the world's most important people. So that's usually my go-to favorite saying. That's a great one, um, but that it's not exactly about entrepreneurship, but I, in in a way it is because I think if you think about some of the comments I made, and I I think I think in the in the context of a company, innovation and leadership has to be about the customers you serve, and so our ability to maintain a focus on children has to be a part of all of our leadership, has to be a part of the innovation we're trying to achieve. So maybe, maybe you've made me rethink it. It's not just a mission and a belief. It, it has to be a kind of a, a North Star a foundational concept uh, for our leadership as well.
0: And if people want to connect with you online, Kent, what's the best way for them to find you or to learn more about Highlights?
1: Yeah, I try to occasionally post things on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn's a, a great place to to connect. Um, I probably my email is on our website, and but I'm you know I'm am passionate about family businesses. I'm passionate about kids, about human development, about education. So I love love talking to people outside the company. So th- those are a variety of ways: just email or call or or connect with me on LinkedIn.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Ken, it was really, truly great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your succession stories and everything that you have done and are doing to educate our kids around the world.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to learn more. I'd love to connect with you. Subscribe to Succession Stories, and if you enjoy the show, please share a rating and review. Thanks for listening.